Cradoline Network. their way to the Judger Magazine. This episode, we're covering the magazine volume two, issues 17 and 18, cover dates December 20, or December 12th and 26th, 1992. This episode, Hershey goes after corruption, Armitage punches a prince, Al's baby takes down two dons, Calhab celebrates Hogamani, and Dread fights robots of the future and ghosts of Christmas past. <laughs> A lot going on. Today. And if you read along, yeah, a lot of stuff. You know, we're sort of, you know, finishing up the year here. If you want to read the comics along with us, you'll find what we're covering today in Judge Dredd, The Complete Case Files 18, The Complete Al's Baby, and The Judge Dredd Magazine 279, 289, and 290. How you doing, Eli? I'm doing great. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we're getting to the end of 1992 here this is our th- this is our, our second full year of uh, the magazine you know right. exciting yeah. times yeah a lot of holidays coming up i'm finding out i thought that was really interesting <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely definitely by um all real ones i guess though in some cases with fictional portrayals or something right um, yeah I was, I was surprised by that but i guess we'll get into that <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'll we'll get to it eventually, but before that, we got to deal with the press more pressing issue of these goddamn robots in <laughs> Story One Mechanismo. <laughs> Script about John Wagner, art about Colin McNeil, letting about Annie Parkhouse. So, Eli, here we go. We're picking up from last time. The Mechanismos, these robot judges, were being introduced to Mega City One, but are now rapidly malfunctioning. These tech guys are trying to shut them down remotely, but number three isn't responding and dreads on the case. Number eight's also refusing to shut down as we see a tech looking at the recalled number nine robot finding a resistor on a circuit board is overheating and destroying the robot's inhibitor circuits. Easy enough to fix, but until then it's creating robots with God complexes thinking they can just shoot everybody and do all this stuff. Classic. (laughs) Definitely. As the tech finds this out, Dredd Dred arrives on the scene at like a plaza where um, everybody's being held hostage by robot number three, basically. Um, Dredd arrives and says, oh, yeah, these humans do look pretty guilty to me. Like, uh, well, I'll arrest them all. And he sends them elsewhere to like be picked up by a catch wagon. But that all turns out to be like a lie to he's humoring the robot to get the humans to safety for this ensuing gunfight, basically. <laughs> Meanwhile, the malfunctioning robot number nine has been spotted by a Manta tank and sort of both like this flying vehicle and Dread have a show uh, showdown briefly. And then we see eight being blown away by the tank. As Dredd does the same with, like, his bike cannon and lawgiver against number three. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Very beautiful. Yeah. I've realized that, like, uh, this artist does violence really well. I say that every time, but... Absolutely. Yeah. Colin McNeil. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's... I find... I feel like he's a real master of making... Like these images, like like he's really good at a full page of just someone being shot, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> like we saw it, 
we saw it in America um, in Space Spinner. We saw it in, a, in, in Song of the Surfer. Um, and we see it here, too. Um, actually, um, it's a little hard to tell just sort of the way we sort of have these digital comics. But in the original ones, these two... Pick the the these two pages of both robots being shot would have been like a two page spread basically mm-hmm. like like on both on either side of the um yeah of the page basically mm-hmm. so you you'd see the two of them getting blown away at once which is pretty awesome yeah definitely wall worthy yeah like yeah no I mean I love McNeil he's really great um after this though it takes a few more shots for Dread to finally take the robot out and it sort of does like a HAL 9000 like daisy day but like instead of that he's saying like you're breaking the law the law must be upheld that kind of stuff um but finally Dread blows the mechanismo away and says you're no judge you never were just a bad mistake which is pretty pretty awesome Standing right. over the corpse of Robot Judge. <laughs> but uh, with that, the threat of Robot Judges has been stopped for the present. But, se- but uh, you know, progress is inevitable, Eli. So Mechanismo will return again in early 1993. So just a couple months from now. Because, you know, I mean, in the end, while these ones malfunction, it seemed like it's a pretty minor thing causing those malfunctions, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Right. The stressors that have caused them to put these robot judges back in place, like, are still there, which right. is basically like, yeah, there just aren't enough judges because everybody got killed in the last in the yeah. the two apocalypses yeah. they've had in the last two years. You know, exactly. one apocalypse. That's too many in too short of a time. That's that's too many. You right. know, <laughs> one every one every five years at most. You right. know, yeah. But I, yeah, they're gonna spin it. You know, just oh, they malfunctioned. Press is going to just kind of sweep it under the rug. They'll have new robots up in no time. I'm sure of it. Yeah. New and improved. It's fine. Yeah. Give them a, co- a, a, a coat of paint. You call <laughs> them Mechanismo 2.0. These ones are blue. It's all good. It's all right. fine. <laughs> Except for Dread because he's like, hates, right. he just hates robots. Right. He'll be That's there. That's his thing. You know. Right. Yeah. You can't. You can't reason with them. Whatever. <laughs> Plus, it's not like the human judges are so great, Eli, with right. their ethics and stuff. Exactly. As, as we learn in Story 2, Judge Hershey. <laughs> Script robot Peter Cornwall, art robot Yan Shimini, letting robot Gordon Robson. So we're in this, uh, we're, we're finishing up this black and white um, Hershey solo story, which I think is is a fun idea generally. Um Democratic activists are being killed in Mega City One, possibly by members of the SJS. That's the special judicial squad who have a lot of skull motifs and are theoretically there to um, judge the judges and, you know, take them out if they do crimes, basically. Um, But anyway, Hershey's on the case. All right. Last issue, she was on the way to meet with an old Academy friend, Judge Darling, at the Hunter S. Thompson block. But now she's arrived to find her friend dead and the place swarming with SJS judges, as well as Chief Magruder. Hershey gives the SJS a hard time. Like, usually they show up, like, they show up last when a judge has been killed, not first. And Magruder basically, like, tells Hershey to cut it and insists and to see her in, an office, in her office in an hour. At the Grand Hall, Magruder explains that the that there are SJS assassination squads. They've always existed, but they're mostly there to investigate judges. And Magruder doesn't seem to be super happy about all these uh, killings of activists and tells Hershey that if Hershey makes a move, she'll like back her officially. 
But uh, once Hershey leaves, the chief calls, like, SJS judge Eliphas, and it seems that, like, she's mostly against these killings being so sloppy, Eli, not actually <laughs> that they're taking place at all, you know? Yeah, have some honor in your craft. Right, or at least, like, you know, wear different clothes, <laughs> like, don't wear your judge uniform to this, <laughs> to your secret murder, you right. know? exactly. It's recognizable, you know? It's got a big skull on it with your name on the skull. Right, exactly. you, know, you gotta be careful. Right. Uh, <laughs> one thing I actually noticed and just about this artist, I like these new mm-hmm. types of judges, but I noticed that their badge is like tilted at an angle, which I find interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they've got like the SJS judges have these like big skull shaped badges mm-hmm. that kind of come diagonally from their shoulder down to their chest or something right. like that. Like it's yeah. sort of, it's like a, like if you think of like a shoulder as like a right angle, like the, the center line of the skull is like sort of at the midpoint of that angle or whatever. Yeah. That great description actually. You know, that's, that's perfect. But hey, it's a good look. Also, I wanted to just quick note, just something that I noticed about this artist, the, the eagles mm-hmm. or the birds on the shoulder pads I didn't know what they were for a long time. It took me a while to, like, like I was mm. trying to figure out, yeah, it's just abstracted in such a way that I thought it was, <laughs> like, some type of other thing. But I'm like, okay, no, it's a bird. And then it kind of, things started making more sense to me. But uh, It's weird, yeah. Just, you know, I like when artists play around with the judge uniform a little bit just because it's so, like, it's got so much stuff going on with it, you right. know, that I think there's a lot of room to play as well. Like this, this design of the SJS uniform is going to be like, hasn't really existed before this comic, I don't think. I don't remember seeing it, but it is what they look like sort of to this day, basically. Like, I think before nice. they just have like the skull on the helmet or something, but Shimini's added a lot more skull imagery to the SJS uniform here for sure. That's exciting, yeah. Yeah, it's fun, you know, whatever. Got to build this world, Eli. That's right. what the whole purpose of the magazine is, I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, while Magruder's talking to Eliphas, like in their conversation, Eliphas seems to try to intimidate Magruder, but the chief won't budge. So instead, Eliphas is forced to call his goons and says it's time to cut Judge Tooth loose because he's being a bit overenthusiastic. Meanwhile, at the Danny Baker block, who was a UK journalist whose brother also died, so sort of like this main character or this uh, activist character, Barley Kane, um, Hershey calls out the reporter she's protecting, Barley Kane, and but Ash, you know, as soon as he's like, "Hey, I'm here," suddenly two SJS judges come abseiling down through the window and open fire. It's pretty awesome, actually. I like when people do the rope thing, like abseiling, when you like kick off from the side of the building and then right. kick through the side of the window. That's yeah. a cool move. Yeah, I also appreciate when um, they do the panel up before the kicking and you kind of see them in the window. I really like that when it's kind of mm-hmm. like a detail you don't really notice until you're like, "Oh, wait!" And then, "Oh, yeah, things are about yeah, to go yeah, down." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That little anticipation moment or something like that. Totally. Um, So they open fire, but Hershey's made of sterner stuff and just guns him right down. Um, But as she does, she gets shot from behind by Judge Tooth, who's sort of the leader of of these goon judges. He goes to take her out, but instead she throws a frag grenade at him and then he runs. She follows after Tooth and arrives just in time to see her to see Tooth being executed by Judge Eliphas. 
Oh, and <laughs> Eliphas is like, oh yeah, um, Tooth had, was operating on his own, so I got a kill order from Magruder to take him out before he kills more people. Um, it seems like he's tied up all the loose ends of the case when Magruder takes a look, or when Hershey, I should say, takes a look at that kill order for Judge Tooth, and it seems that Eliphas has misspelled Judge Magruder's name on the death warrant. <laughs> like... Because he wrote Mac Gruder instead of Mick Gruder. Right. And, then they and sh- I guess... <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. yeah to me, this kind of... Im- <laughs> yeah. It implies that maybe like that means that Hershey will be able to take a lifeist down too or something like that. I don't... It's not very explicit what exactly the, what exactly the resolution of the story is. Right. Sure. Yeah. Just yeah like, oh. I don't know. <laughs> I have feelings about that. Because it could be any, yeah, it could be anything from, well, w- you know, this is proof and I'm arresting all of you to like, oh, well, like that's Life of Mega City 1. Right, Like whatever, you know. Right. Curve yeah, enthusiasm music. That's accurate. That's how I feel too. <laughs> like it could be anything, you know. <laughs> Who knows? <Right. laughs> um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I I like the the art in this in this story. I think Ian Shemini's really interesting black and white artist. Um, and Definitely. like, but like, I will say that I don't know. This story seemed dense to me, or like a lot of this intrigue stuff. I feel like I'm kind of making up exactly what's happening. I don't know if I'm following <laughs> the exact details of the story. I guess it feels like there might be some elements, or like I don't know, parts of the story that they're just sort of skipping over and not making a big deal of or something that I'm just sort of making up. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I feel that disconnect. It's almost like when someone makes a mystery, but they don't actually know the end of it yet. It's almost like, mm-hmm. it feels kind of like things are happening. It seems interesting, but then you get to the end and you're like, yeah, huh? Do I feel satisfied? Yeah, exactly. Or is it? <laughs> yeah. Like, like this person's clearly juggling a bunch of things, but it's not clear what exactly it is they're juggling. And that somehow takes away from the, from the, from the feet, I guess. From the yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I don't think this story was, was the greatest, but it, I really did like um, Hershey getting a multi-issue story here in the magazine. I'm a big Hershey fan and she'll be back again with another story in April of 93. So we're getting nice. more Hershey in the course this, of the magazine here. Was this in fact the first Hershey uh, multi story. Or? Yes, yeah. All this right. is the first multi multi issue Hershey story okay. we've had. I think one or two other. Yeah, yeah. Like a couple other one offs. Basically, mm-hmm. this is the first one where they had multiple, which yeah. I think is cool. I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm excited <laughs> to see more Hershey, and you know, maybe yeah. just keep expanding stories, get different writers on her, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's get fun. some cool stuff. Yeah, you know, I like all these. Expect like I feel like. With Hershey, because she's sort of a member of the Council of Five or this sort of higher up ranking judge, she can do some more of these like intrigue type stories in a way that I don't think makes a lot of sense for Dread, I guess. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think she's an interesting character to go through it, you know, and sort of whatever. She's one of the one of the three like uh, she's part of the axis of these Dread characters like Dread, Hershey and then Anderson, I feel like are your three main right. like. Yeah. Mega City One judges who you're going to do stories about, you yeah. know. I, you know, I also have a new appreciation for uh, they make really uh, like uh, badass women characters. Like I, I just realized that that the main three are like mm-hmm. we got two, you know, female characters that 
beat people up. Yeah, often. I think totally. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty cool. And just like I appreciate like the the work to kind of make that be part of the brand guidelines of or whatever of Judge Dredd or whatever. You know, they are willing to have like it's not weird to have lady judges and lady judges be you know tough and cool. I guess. It is something you always got to fight against or work towards when you're doing comics. I think it's tough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but if um, if those three are the main judges in Mega City One, let's talk about the one of the main judges we know in Britsit, Eli, <laughs> with Story Three Armitage. <laughs> Script about Dave Stone, art about Charlie Adlar, letting her about Annie Parkhouse. So you're gonna say I was, something. Uh... Yeah, I was trying to set you up for a uh, speaking of badass uh, women, Eli. Uh, hey, <laughs> totally. I don't yeah, want to. Treasure Steel is also pretty badass, definitely. <laughs> I'll take any transition I can get, honestly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Armitage and his part. So Brit, Brit Sit Detective Armitage and his partner Treasure Steel are investigating the massacre at an upper crust sex party and it's led them to the Forbidden Citadel, the home of Britsit's royal family. Last time, Steele was going to bed when she was confronted by the inbred and deeply weird Prince Regent. <laughs> and now we see a slightly disheveled Armitage wandering the halls of the Citadel, entering Steele's room and finding her in the middle of being harassed by the prince, at least until she just kicks the crap out of him. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, it's a little much. Like, she hit a three or four hit combo. After the first two, you don't need to keep beating him up. That seemed extensive, but... No, no, no. no. I, I mean, I don't know, man. I'm like, I'm like Popeyes. You know, I only have a three-piece combo. You know, maybe you can <laughs> add more than that. But, you know, I don't know, you know, if you're... If you want to go on that ride, that's what you're going to get, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or something. Um, I like that Armitage didn't actually have to save treasure here or anything like that. She's more than more than capable of kicking the shit out of this little weird (laughs) prince guy. (laughs) Armitage then explains that he's up because he's actually pretty sure the prince is our killer, as he's the only one that can actually leave this citadel without getting shot. And speaking of getting shot, here comes that Lord Chamberlain guy about to shoot our friends. Oh, no. Armitage takes this opportunity to go full, like, uh, you know, Poirot in the in the drawing room here, explaining the whole uh, mystery, basically. <laughs> um, he's like, yeah, um, the, sorry. Well, yeah, he lays it out. The prince wanted to see the outside world. Went to the sex party, killed a woman by maybe by accident. So Citadel security forces were called out and flew in immediately, just executed everybody there to take out witnesses. The Chamberlain admits it. He's <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> starts to monologue about the purity of like monarchy, I guess. And just right. like, you know, kings are different than you and me or something. Yeah, of course. But so you, before, so you know he's going to yeah. die. You can't just say that and then just... Go back about your life. You know, listen, that's what these Brits are into, Eli, I think. I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. But <laughs> as before he can get too far into it, our heroes just charge at the guards and take them both out, which I think is pretty cool. It's like, get out of here. I don't want to hear this. But the Chamberlain has his own gun and opens fire on Armitage, hitting him a couple times in the arm. Oh, no. 
And then after the end of the story in issue 17, there's also a pinup of uh, action, of a big action treasure steel who's changed into a, uh, a red and black leotard thing with like combat headgear and a gun and stuff. Right. Very cool, you know. Right. <laughs> but to finish this up, in, we cut to like this weird part of like the undercity of Britsit where we've been following some weird goblin dudes. So I'm saying weird a lot here, but that's the only, <laughs> that's the best adjective I got. Um, these exactly. goblin dudes, they've been moving through a strange, contra- they're moving like a strange contraption, quoting TV commercials while trying to be solemn. And I don't know. It's, I don't know. Um, back at the Citadel, Armitage is, be- is uh, getting shot as Steel headbutts and knocks out a guard, takes that guard's gun and blows the Chamberlain away. Armitage isn't doing too great, though. He's covered in blood, says he can't feel his feet, and then starts talking to someone named Leora. In her journal, Treasure Steel talks about um, doing first aid on Armitage, tying off an artery in his chest. But when she leaves him, the detective's heart isn't beating, so she has no choice but to arm up and fight her way out of the, pri- out of the palace, which is always my first instinct as well, for, for sure. Right, yeah. <laughs> Better have a gunfight, you know. <laughs> this leads to a firefight but of course steel's way outnumbered and things are are looking bad until suddenly a bunch of lights go on and we see a pair of gunships breaching the roof of the citadel like smashing through it and then heavy guns mounted in those vehicles just mow down the residence guards and stuff it's pretty awesome it's death from above As the ships land, discard, uh, disgorge various armed jerks, as well as their boss in a hover wheelchair, Eiffel Dragoson, that um, crime boss guy from earlier in the story. Um, Treasure Steel's held under guard until the Citadel's pacified, and we see that Armitage has been bandaged and clean up, cleaned up and is being taken to medical atten- um, attention. Dragoson, like Armitage, is very cagey about his relationship with the detective. And like we learned last time... Or we learned in our previous meeting with with Dragoson that like there were like bad things would happen if Dragoson died, basically. Like right. so, Armitage can't kill him. But it looks like those protections might go the other way too. So like if Armitage um, dies, something bad will happen to Dragoson or something like that. So he sort of I don't know got a priority message and dispatched his his goons to to save him. Yeah. Is what it seems like. Yeah, I like that they tied it in. Yeah. Yeah, this one, this is very lore-heavy Armitage, Eli. I actually want to talk about that when we get to the end, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Dragosun's like, time to go home, Miss Steel. Your spouse must be worried sick. As we see Dragosun sort of wheel over into the prince's harem to make them an offer, to make the, the various harem princesses there an offer that they can't refuse, it seems like. <laughs> Which is troubling, actually. Like, I laughed, right. but now I'm thinking about it, and that's probably not that cool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he meant metaphorically. He didn't mean, like, literally can't refuse, you know. Whole different I, don't, I don't know. Thing. You don't know that. I don't know that. <laughs> we don't. We can't say. I'm trying to, trying to be hopeful. But yeah. <laughs> mm. Doesn't seem good. 
wrapping up at, at a hospital, Armitage is recovering, and it seems all mention of Dragosan has disappeared from the official record, though the prince is now in Brissett custody. Steele feels like they failed, honestly, like they got the perp, but they had to be rescued to do it. And there's all this weird stuff going on, as well as unanswered questions like that one missing body and stuff. And Armitage basically says, ah, don't worry, there's always loose ends for that stuff. And like, if I want to sort of get real crazy, Eli, the fact that um, like Steele brought Armitage a pork pie, um, like, you know, like the whatever pastry with meat in it or whatever. Mm, right. And the final shot is of that pie, which to me seems to imply that those dwarf guys were grinding that dead guy up for meat or something like that. That is I don't exactly know. what I gained from it. <laughs> You know, very Sweeney Todd sort of thing. This, right. You know, the Brit, the Brit, Brits love illicitly putting human meat in pies. That's yeah. uh, I, I, I know that for sure. You right. know. <laughs> but I think this Armitage story really had a like a lot of what this Armitage story is is like again building more of this work like backstory stuff for Armitage. I guess like we had sort of. That encounter with that blonde lady from his past for a little bit who sort of said some mysterious things. And there's all this undercity stuff that's weird and not very well explained. But clearly, like, we'll see more of it. Like, or, or I, 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 I hope we will, I guess. Um, <laughs> you know, Armitage's relationship with Dragosan, stuff like that. There's all these, like, mysteries. Most of them, many of them around Armitage's backstory, but others of just sort of what's going on in Britsit that they're clearly setting up for future stories and not really, or only vaguely related to this current story that we're talking about, if that makes sense. No, yeah, definitely. I think you hit the nail on the head. It seems like they're setting up for something bigger. Um, And I don't know, you know, when that's going to be, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping for some big, gigantic reveal. Totally. I'm always I'm always up for that. Give me these twists for sure. We, 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 we won't have to wait long, actually, because um, I believe we'll start a new Armitage story in our next regular episode in, at the start of 1993. It's definitely definitely seems like Dave Stone sort of has or they're 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 giving him some line to do these Armitage stories because they're definitely I feel like it's one of the it's, it's one of the few things that we're seeing multiple um, multiple sets of, you know. Okay, let's have yeah, because that'll be our third Armitage story. Yeah, no, that's pretty. Which is more than I think we've seen of any other character. Yeah, you know, just sort of. I definitely think because he's like a detective, and definitely because he's from Britsit, they're sort of editorials pretty high on Armitage right now. I think, but yeah, I don't know. Exciting stuff. We'll see where it goes. That's yeah. how you know. That's how you live it. Right. Right. <laughs> totally solving mysteries, being weird. Yeah, and I think it's because it's, it's, it's hard to speculate. Like with just what we have so far. We still need, like, several yeah. more clues before we can really, well, at least before yeah, I feel comfortable making a leap. Yeah, there's definitely still some puzzle pieces that I think we need to see before we can really try to start putting it together at this point. Ooh. All these right. all these metaphors I got, Eli. <laughs> Doing them all. <laughs> yeah, you're rocking. Talk about juggling, juggling earlier. Talk about puzzles now. It's a whole thing. <laughs> Anyway, um, speaking of other people's theories for how these stories should go, let's go to covers, editorials, and dreadlines. It's all the non-story stuff for this episode. 
So Prague, so, uh, sorry, volume two, issue 17 of the magazine, High Noon. It's Dread vs. Mechanismo, and it's covered by Colin McNeil. I really like this one just because it's sort of, it's this bo- it's this full body shot of, of Dread looking cool, but like it's framed by being sort of around like Mechanismo and Moe's armpit or something like that. Right. So sort of see through him to Dread, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's really awesome. Really excellent. Colin McNeil, right? Yeah. It, it, yeah, 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 yeah. The same guy who did the main yeah. story. It's just it's 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 got a very gunfight kind of feel, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is cool. Uh, the editorial announces the end of Mechanismo as well as the current Hershey story and an offer on a discount for subscriptions that will last until the end of 1992. The credit text says high noon, and I just noticed actually that this this bunch of legal text at the bottom of the pay of the of the of the of the Taylor credits page um lists both the creators of dread which it always does but also has a copyright for al's baby both are held by john wagner and carlos Escara, so these guys are you know getting their legalese in which i appreciate right um the dread lines the mailbag columns offering a free t-shirt for letters so send them in Several letters compliment the magazine in response to some negative letters the mags received recently. There's also a letter from friend of the show, Pete Wells, all these years ago, asking for more topical stories in the magazine. Well, another wants a Devlin Waugh Judge Dredd crossover, which I believe we'll get eventually. Mm. Um, another questions the wisdom of explicitly linking the timelines of Judge Dredd and Johnny Alpha. And then, and then also asks that the credit pages be removed because they're just there to be filler. And like, yeah, you know, this is the life we've chosen. It's going to be filler, I guess. <laughs> the issue en- ends with an ad for the 2080 Winter Special, which we'll be talk, which we'll have on the show next week, and a uh, way to order the 1993 calendar that we've seen already in the pages of the Meg, but now with a nice red spiral binding, so you can, you know, looks good on the wall as opposed to one cut out of your magazine, I guess. Um, then volume two, issue 18, 1992 is ending and the cover designer is clearly taking early holiday as this one is just a red close up on Dredd's eye. (laughs) (laughs) Text adding us to vote, um, on a reader survey. This is like, it's this Dredd eye has just got to be from other, some other thing that they've just sort of blown up basically. You know, it's very, very like, oh, uh, let's just do a quick cover. Get out of here. You know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Right. Um, although it does say that there is original artwork to be won if you do the surveys. In the editorial, we yeah we learned that you can win the artwork by doing that survey. There's mention of Barry Kitson's return to Dread and plugs for the other stories in here, as well as teases for the return of Heavy Metal Dread and another one-off Dread tale in the next uh, issue of the Meg. The credit text says, black and white and Dread all over. And I believe instead of Dreadlines this issue, we've got this big survey. You know, again, you could win artwork from Devlin Waugh, Judgment Day, The Taking of Sector 123, this most recent Armitage story, and the Texas City Sting, if you uh, answer the questions. Like 30 winners of those. And the questions themselves are like, they ask for demographic data, like, you know, how old are you? What, you know, um, what, what, what's your gender, et cetera. And then they've just got a ton of very specific questions, it feels like, about your favorite characters, series, covers, artists, some specific stuff about Judgment Day and more. Like, it's a lot of like, who's your favorite character? Who's your favorite new character? (laughs) 
Who's your favorite yeah. character that's been in the magazine recently? Yeah. That kind of stuff. Gotta get all those data points. We want to know uh, how to Absolutely. build this stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I believe we'll actually see the results of this survey pretty soon as like a bunch of percentages and stuff and top nice. 10 winners and things like that. I, lo- I love that. I love when like uh, some manga I read, they do that sometimes. They do like a popularity contest. So I always like that information. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's very... In 2000 AD, they always have a comment card people can fit, can fill in, which is like, what are your, like, what's your number one, two, and three story? And then what's your least favorite, favorite story in the, in the Prague? That's what we do. And yeah. And listen, (laughs) that I've taken direct inspiration from that for our top and bottom stories, Eli. Like, you know, (laughs) that's our version of it. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But yeah, listen. Everybody, yeah, we're, we're learning everybody's opinion, but you got to be careful about what everybody thinks because not all of us could back up our opinions with our murderous gangster ways the way they can right. in story four, <laughs> Al's baby. <laughs> Don't insult these gangsters, Eli. They'll take right. you out. Script Robot John Wagner, Art Robot Color Sascara, Letting Robot Tom Frame, Al Bastardi, Neo Chicago's best hitman, along with his toddler son, second-in-command Sal, and his boss's cousin Tony, who's being groomed to be the next boss in Al's place, are on a road trip to kill the heads of the other five mafia families. That's how it goes. That's the story. At the Miami No-Tell Hotel, or No-Tell Motel, I should say, the crew signs in under assumed names, and Al and Sal prepare to do the hit with Tony watching Al Jr. He's the kid. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Uh, Tony is not into watching this kid, threatens to call his uncle on Al, and but meanwhile, in the car, Al complains to Sal, and is like, oh man, I'm tired of this Tony guy. I should just find some way for him to die in an accident, so I don't gotta deal with him. And Sal's like, yeah, buddy, we all know what your accidents are like. Like that's, you know, <laughs> no one would buy that alibi if you just kill, if you killed him. But that's not going to stop him. Right. On the Miami, on the Miami beach, this pair. And I love that they're in like sort of gangstery Hawaiian shirts and Bermuda shorts. <laughs> and like they're still wearing their fedoras and like their dress shoes and black socks as they stand on the beach, you know. Right. And they're <laughs> professionals. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they, you know, they got to keep these shoes on. But from the beach, they spot the yacht of Don Ricardo Dicky Gumma off the shore. It won't be easy to take that boat out, but where there's a will, there's a way. Back at the hotel, Tony complains that Al Jr. is uncontrollable, and it seems that he's spanked the child. Oh, no. My goodness. Al isn't pleased. Yeah, it's very shocking. Al's not pleased by this corporal punishment, but Sal talks him down before he beats up uh, Tony. Instead, we cut to a boat where Tony is going to scuba dive his way to Don Gumma's boat, place a limpet mine on it, and then they'll blow the whole thing up. Good times. Love the return of limpet mines, Eli, to the uh, to the podcast here. They were big in the early days of 2000 AD. Just a, a bomb that sticks onto something. It's nice, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Convenient. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so Tony swims out and plants the bomb, and Al tries to blow up the ship along with Tony, but the remote detonator doesn't work. Ah, oh, the bomb's a dud. Jeez. <laughs> Meanwhile, Dom Gunna's Gumma is deep sea fishing, and he hung and he hooks Tony's swim trunks. Oh no! This 
pulls Toby to the surface and like the goons see that, you know, there's some guy scuba diving near their boat and open fire, but they all miss as Tony tries to swim away, still hooked onto the boat. As all this happens, Al Jr. finds the remote for the bomb, presses the button on it, and the bomb finally works, and Don Gumma's ship explodes in a blaze of glory. Hooray! Magic of childhood. Just, you know. He's got, yeah, he's got a way with, with, with machines, I guess. <laughs> so Don Gumma is dead, and maybe so is Tony. All right! Al celebrates, practicing his sad speech for the Godfather, when suddenly Tony pulls himself aboard the boat, and he's okay. Ah, oh, jeez. But that also means that Al Jr. has made his first hit with eight dead and three in intensive care. Al... <laughs> calls in to his father-in-law, Don Luigi, who's a proud grandfather, but also a pissed one, because who takes a kid on an assassination road trip? What's going on? Which is a fair criticism, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. You gotta start him young, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. I think I think everybody agrees with that, but you just, you you gotta say that you can't do it. <laughs> even while not really do anything to stop it, you know? Got it. Right, right. <laughs> um... Anyway, the Don says, just don't let the kid come to any harm, because that's my grandson there. Tony also says things are going good, and the crew is off to Dallas, as Al thinks twice about killing Tony. Maybe instead he can just get him arrested for one of these murders they're doing. That seems like it makes sense. It's certainly possible. Um, we see the crew setting up a sniper position in a... Um, in like a derelict office building or something. They don't specifically say it's a book depository, which I feel like is a missed joke for uh, an assassination attempt in Dallas, I guess, like a JFK kind of thing, but whatever. Mm. Mm. You know, they, it's there, but they didn't reach for it. You know, I don't know. They used some subtlety or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, as they set up the sniper position, Al makes sure Tony gets his prints all over everything. Like, yeah, grab that gun. Just touch it all over the place. Don't wear gloves. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, they're going after Don Frankie the Wolf Lupus here, who comes this way every day, but his limo is bulletproof, so they only get one shot, literally, at this assassination attempt. But as they get set up, Al clearly wants Al Jr. to do the actual, like, trigger pulling, which may also be an attempt to, like, preserve Tony's prints on things or something, but still, right. it's kind of weird. <laughs> um... The Don's car is stopped at a red light. They sort of had somebody give them control of the lights. They could sort of stop, you know, make red and green lights go when they needed. And as the car waits, Tony runs out with a sponge to try to, like, clean the Don's windshield. But when and when the other uh, driver rolls down his window to yell at Tony, tell him to get out of here, exposes Don to the, the Don to the sniper and... They open fire through, like, the windshield into the back seat of the car. It's a pretty cool shot, actually. Right. Um, right. That's high levels for in, a kid. Absolutely. Yeah. Pretty good for a toddler. Definitely. <laughs> and indeed, it proves to be too much for him because instead of killing the Don, they just hit him in the shoulder and he's not quite dead yet. Luckily, Tony's window washing has fouled up the, fouled up the windshield enough that when the driver tries to peel out and, like drive away quickly instead he crashes right into an on into a nearby truck and the car explodes which is also pretty awesome <laughs> al drops the gun with tony's prince and the and uh, al and sal go to run as al snags one of junior's dirty diapers as they go 
but the Don's crashed car has blocked the main entrance to the building, so instead, Sal and Al and Al Jr. have to go out this fire escape, and when they do, Al drops the dirty diaper, and it lands right on Tony's face, and then they're using a fire escape, and the ladder from the fire escape also smashes right into Tony's head, which is like, this guy can't catch a break. So mean to Tony. You know? Right. Definitely. Tony. He's just having a bad time. They also talk about how Al actually doesn't want Tony to die anymore. So they're like, oh, God, thank God he actually survived like this series of unfortunate events. Like, we need him to live for right now. <laughs> He's in a bad way as the lads load him into their car and go to escape. They run over a somehow still surviving Don Lupus, finally fishing him off. And as they go, Sal's like, uh-huh, not your best hit, Al. Not like this one's kind of a shambles. <laughs> <laughs> right. A uh, double um, car crash, a fire, uh, diaper, fire, fire escape. Yeah, there was just definitely yeah. not well executed. Self-inflict- yeah, self-inflicted near murder of one of your own guys. And plus the big <laughs> fire burns down the building so that all the evidence they tried to plant against Tony was destroyed. Oh, no. Oh, right. I hadn't thought about Can't that. Can't catch a break. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, they're off to the next hit, but we learn next time that it'll actually be a special change of pace episode of Al's Baby. No blood, no murders next issue. <laughs> but we'll see if that trend continues. You right. gotta, you know, they yeah. gotta keep killing these dudes, Eli. That's how it goes. If they can pull it off. I'll give them extra credit because that seems not the way they usually go about things. That's branching out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is a fun story. Like, like I, I, I like this Al's Baby story. Um, you know, it's clearly just sort of a violent humor story, which I think is pretty solid, you know. And right. I'm, yeah. I'm continuing to love the costume design for these gangsters. You know, they're, they're Hawaiian or they're like beach looks and stuff like that are all pretty good. Uh, yeah. Um, one thing I noticed is that um, when I go back to my memory about Al's baby, I remember the ridiculousness mm-hmm. of, you know, this gangster, you know, dealing with this, this pregnancy. And I feel like they kept that mm-hmm. same wacky type of like humor throughout because they're not doing anything supernatural, mm-hmm. you know, or like, you know, special or sci-fi anymore. Now they're just doing usual hits. But it's like, yeah, they have this toddler with them with this diaper gag that's just kind of always with them trying to be mobsters. Yeah, it's just- so. Yeah, it means they can always get scatological when they need to, right. you know, as opposed to finding a way for somebody to fall into that outhouse and almost die or something <laughs> like that, you know. Now they've just got a, got a mobile outhouse, basically. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Any given time, you know, you're, you're, you're one diaper change away from things being able to be gross, which is always fun. <laughs> but yeah, listen... Hey, family road trips, Eli, they're a part of a lot of people's holiday experiences. We all know it. I've definitely been on my share. And, you know, Al and Sal and little Al and Toady travel in the roads. Oh, it puts me in an almost Christmassy mood, Eli. (laughs) A holiday mood. Right. So let's go further with that with Story 5, A Christmas Carol. Um, well done. Well played. Uh, script, script robot John Wagner and Charles Dickens. Art robot Barry Kitts and Robin Botel. Letting robot Tom Frame. First time in the Meg for Kitson, Botel, and Charles Dickens, who's being quoted at various points in this very Christmassy dread story. It's a merry scene in Mega City One. As snow falls, people's, people carol, and dread arrests a Santa for taking money for charity without 
or because his collector's license is out of date, like, oh, you're, you know, you're breaking the law by taking this money to help people, buddy. You're out of here. Right. Um, the sections from The Christmas Carol are the ones that are basically about Scrooge, sort of, you know, introducing him as a miser and jerk, basically. And they're clearly meant to also be about dread as he sort of moves through the snowy Mega City One. Um, as Dredd as Dread, uh, rides on his lawmaster, he um, heads to go help out to take down an, an escaped prisoner from the Psycho Cubes as Mad Brad Marley. And Marley is the first ghost from the Christmas Carol, the guy with all the chains and stuff around him. I always remember him being played by Goofy in the Disney version right. of um, the Christmas Carol. But he's on the run. And so Dread goes after him. He pursues the fugitive into a dark, into a, into a bill, into a, uh, like sort of abandoned building and a dark room where the perp wangs him in the back of the head with a chain. And of course, again, like the character of Marley in A Christmas Carol had all these chains attached to him with like coin boxes and stuff that was sort of, I don't know, it was supposed to represent how he was like chained to money and right. the acclamation, you know, the gaining of wealth and things like that when he was alive. But in this case, it's a literal chain whapping dread upside the head. <laughs> Symbolism. It must catch him. Yeah, it must catch him right in the neck or something like that, because you'd think that his helmet would be specifically designed to help against these kinds of situations. But there right. you go, you know. I mean, maybe it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a heavy chain. It might have been that the impact is still enough to knock him down. Uh, but yeah, you can see be. it is kind of around his neck, though. Like, I think you might be right on that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Marley says he just wants to see his family at Christmas as suddenly like a statuary in the in the room Dred's in turns into the face of Dred's brother Rico. Oh, no. This uh, this face that has had like a bunch of surgeries done to it and stuff to allow him to survive in the harsh environment of Titan where he was sent after Dred arrested him. Um Rico remembers a past Christmas where the young Dread brothers, Joe and Rico, passed notes to each other in class with like a nice one. Like Rico draws a picture of the two of them and Dread passed a note saying um, that he'll polish Rico's boots for a week. Like it's like a Christmas gift or something. But then we learn that the next day Dread turned both of them in for passing notes. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's how much of the that's how much of a stickler he is for the law. He won't even right. pass notes to his old brother for Christmas. Ah, <laughs> oh, so silly. Um, right. Rico says that Joe lost his soul that day. While that nice mis that nice Marley lad appreciates Christmas. Thank you very much. Dread manages to get it together. Um, leaving this image of his brother and going after Marley through a crowded back alley of Mega City One. Um, he calls into control that he suffered a concussion as uh, Rico's face forms in the flames of a campfire and shows Joe a vision of the people celebrating Christmas in the present, even as it breaks the law. We see a possible happy scene of Dread breaking bread with a bunch of citizens at like a, a fancy feast or something. Um, but the lawman soon comes to his assist to his senses and like overturns the fam the fantasy table. Like he's right. he's not hanging out with these people, right. but he's just, about the law. Just not having it. I thought that was no nope. uh, table flipping for the Christmas spirit. I found very accurate for Dread. <laughs> Hey, listen, yeah, flipping a table is the gift you give yourself, Eli, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, 
Instead, Dredd now spots Marley climbing a wall and shoots him with a heatseeker bullet, seemingly killing Marley as a heavily concussed Dredd then stands, then passes out in the snow as a ghostly Rico taunts him with visions of the future, a future where citizens dance around his, dre- his prone body and beat him to death because they, like, you know, think he's a jerk, basically. Right. And they, they'll, they'll get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Dredd, though, regains his consciousness, as does Marley, despite the big hole in his chest. And he says he just wants to see his wife and kids. Is that so wrong? He goes to attack Dredd again, but Dredd has his lawgiver and just blows a big old hole in Marley's chest. Even bigger hole, right. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) The citizens go to attack Dredd, but before they can, an H-Wagon appears in the sky to pick him up. Uh, We learn partway through the story, I guess, that Dredd's usual microphone had been broken, so he couldn't call into control. Like, it got broken, I guess, by, like, the chain that wrapped around his neck for a second or something right. like that. Yeah, he said it was in his throat, but, so I have to assume that, yeah, yeah the chain damaged He called it a throat mic a couple times, yeah. Right. So it must have been damaged with that chain strike. But it seems some citizen did call in that Dredd was in trouble, and so the H-Wagon came to help him. And I get so the that judge is like I guess there's still some goodwill left um, here in Mega City One. As Dred's being taken away, some citizens ask why he, they didn't why he didn't let or a citizen asks a judge why Dred didn't let Marley see his wife and kids. And the judge is like Marley ate his wife and kids. He's crazy, right? <laughs> He's out of his mind. Yeah. So Dred's loaded into the wagon, but orders the whole dang street arrested because, like, many of them, like, you know, were, like, attacked him or were, you know, obstructed justice and things like that. So just take them all down. We'll we'll figure – let the interrogators uh, figure it out. Right. They'll spend their Christmas in a nice warm cube. Now get me to the med bay. Merry Christmas. The gift that keeps on giving. Hey, listen, justice, buddy. Right. That's the greatest right. gift of all. Thank <laughs> right. you very much, you know? <laughs> but yeah, fun to see how these different holidays are handled in the, in the, in the magazine, you know? Right. Like, it's always so weird, Mega City 1 at Christmas, like that they've just sort of, they've erased so much of history, but this still carries on somehow, you know? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. And I, I do they don't, like, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's pretty interesting how they take the spin of the Christmas Carol and totally spin it. Like, it was, um, the whole time I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this poor guy, is Judge going to be an a-hole? You know, is Dredd going to be mean about it? And then they kind of like, no, yeah, he was actually right. Like, yeah, no, this, yeah, no, he's justified uh, Justice is the gift, right. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I don't think this is even the first and certainly not the last time we'll do a Christmas Carol thing <laughs> with Judge yeah. Dredd, you know. Um, it's just too much, too too big of a theme in England, I think, to to, mm. to not get into it, you know. But yeah, but I guess speaking of holidays in other parts of the world, Eli, let's finish up with story six: Cal Hab Justice. Script robot Jim Alexander, art robot John Ridgway, lettering robot Gordon Robson. So we're back in Dreadworld, Scotland, for a bit more justice, Cal Hab style. This story is called Hogmanay. Or Hogman, ho, yeah, Hogmanny, um, and that's Scottish New Year, Eli. That's a it, that's a real thing in real life, I guess. Oh, nice. That right. concept, yeah. So 
CalHab is counting down to the year 2115. Some are celebrating early, of course, as we see side Judge Shahalian's uh, lady friend ask him nicely to not freak out her family with his weird mind powers. He refuses to make any such uh, promises. <laughs> <laughs> At uh, Cal. At Calhab HQ, the chief inspector is ignoring a phone call and smoking a cigar as he tells Judge Ed McBrain in civilian clothes that, listen, there's an amnesty. No one commits crimes on Hogmanny, and no one should call the cops either on that day. We're all taking the day off. <laughs> the two men then talk about a recent case and toast to old times. Elsewhere, a Judge Bryson is polishing boots when another judge, I think a lady judge, shows up and like kicks the boot out of his hand and then shoots him in the foot. I don't, I don't know what's going on here, Eli. It's okay. weird. All right. I was lost. I was hoping you had it, but okay. It was... No, no I'm equally confused. Okay. Uh, the, ju- the judge thanks McBrain for not grassing on him. And to grass is like a British term for, for snitching, basically. Mm. And says that he basically offers to take McBrain with him in five years when he retires to Britsit. But McBrain's happy here in Calhav. It's where he belongs, he feels. And then he gives the chief a pouch of something. This isn't clear either. And then walks into the night. On the Calhab streets, McBrain is met by a man in heavy bandages who's just recovering from a beating McBrain gave him recently. And he's like, oh, yeah. You kicked the shit out of me. That's awesome. Hey, why don't you come down to the house? You know, the the, the wife's making a stew. You know, we'll all, we'll have, a, have a holiday feast. But McBrain's good. He's like, you know, I'm, I've got my own plans. Oh, so he'd have some shortcake, I should say. But but McBrain says no. He sort of walks home, reflecting on Calhab. It's full of weirdos, heavy radiation, warring clans, destitution, to say nothing of these weird-ass judges. But in the end, it's all basically okay. Like, he likes it. (laughs) McBrain returns to his apartment, pets his giant pet cat, and then opens the door to his partner, Judge uh, Buchan, who we just met last time, and I think might be the person who shot the other judge's foot, but I can't be sure, Eli. It's hard to tell. Yeah, I think um, so too. Yeah, it's got that look, but like, I don't know. There's a lot of similar, like people kind of look the same, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's like, there's no identifying marks between these two different brunettes, I guess. <laughs> right. She, she says that she suspects that McBrain is harboring illegal booze. And he in turn uh, offers or says he needs help getting rid of the evidence. And so basically whatever they're going to drink and toast in the new year, etc. The end. <laughs> and Calhab Justice will return in the summer of 1993. So, a yeah. little bit of a ways there. Yeah. I do think it's, that's, I guess, one of the downsides of black and white is that if you have characters that look similar, you don't you can't identify them with color, which is an easy, like, right. re- green hair. Okay, well, you know, you can just kind of keep that. But in black and white, it's like this general shape, and it's kind of a little bit more ambiguous. Yeah. If only she had a scar or something, Eli. Right. You know, that's exactly. my move. Right. Yeah, wacky chapter though. We- Just you got New Year, yeah. you got psychic powers. A person gets shot in the foot. Somebody invites their uh, previous person that beat the crap out of them to dinner, and just mm-hmm. good old holiday cheer. I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some sort of intrigue or some 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 sort of checkered hat past that the chief inspector has too. Right. Like 
kind of like Armitage, actually. This one sort of had a basic story, but they also clearly want to like use that very basic story to then also try to add some extra stuff just to this Calhab story, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But really <laughs> interesting and wacky. Right. If in in that way, it yeah. feels like New Year. There's some type of weird stuff's happening. I don't really get it, but I'm generally positive. Is kind of how I feel yeah. about that the holiday. So definitely, yeah, it's a milestone, but not one that'll actually change anything if you don't go out and change it yourself or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but hey, with that, Eli. Oh my gosh, we finished. Volume 2, issues 17 and 18 of the Judge Dredd magazine, and all the megs for the year of 1992. Good lord, the distance we've come. But with that said, there's something I must know from you, my friend, and that is, what are your top and bottom stories for these issues? Uh, This one was actually pretty easy for me. Um, Usually I have more trouble, but I think think, uh, it's had it in my mind. Um. I see putting uh, Judge Hershey's Death Squads on bottom and mm. Mechanismo on top. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, Death Squads just kind of ended in a way that I didn't really get. I yeah. feel like the, the New Year story kind of ended the same way. But for some reason, Hershey, because it took me two chapters, I was just a little bit more upset about it. Like, I, just, I wanted just a little <laughs> yeah. bit more of something out of it. Um, uh mm-hmm. And then, yeah, um, and Mechanismo just being awesome. And I said, I think I'm giving a lot of credit to the illustrator. <laughs> yes, that beautiful violence that yeah. he can make just always touches my heart. I just spend way too hey. much time just yeah. staring at panels. So I maybe it's the sunken cost fall- fallacy. Where I'm just like, wow, well, no, I, spend I, mean, time I, no, I don't think this. so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, honestly, I feel like I want to join you on both counts, honestly. Like, yeah, I really didn't like the end of this Hershey story because it felt like, oh, and like, yeah, like like we said, like weirdly ambiguous or whatever. Like, right. so, like, oh, yeah, she misspelled her name. Like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, <laughs> right. What is, yeah. Like, is that good? Like, is that bad? Is that worse? Like, what's right. going on here? Yeah, yeah. And ending it on it, that you just have to go to sleep, go to bed now on on this element is like it, it festers yeah. longer right yeah it's like well yeah what's going on yeah so definitely I, and then yeah i mean like i've said from the start of the magazine colin mcneil is one of my favorite artists for dread stuff and so you know i've loved this story so far like you said we had some good moments of violence in here and again i just love his mechanismo designs these big chunky robots and stuff i think that's a really fun robot judge design and stuff like that and then i'm also just a big fan of again this mechanismo stuff playing off dread's hatred of robots which is something that we've had almost since the start of the comic actually he does not like robots and so i think creating stuff to make him have to interface with the robots is then a fun way to play off the character of dread and again right. when it's been then brought to life by one of my fave artists hey that's what we're looking right. for over here you know right. hard to beat <laughs> exactly awesome all right but you know keep your keep your evaluating hat on eli that's all i want to say okay. um but right. uh, before then i hope everybody enjoyed the show as always you can find big meg one on itunes stitch or the google play store spotify or our podcast site bigmeg1.com Feel free to contact us at bigmeg1 at gmail.com on the 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. For all those, check out Big Meg 1 with one written out and you'll find us. 
And feel free to drop us a rating or review wherever you listen to us or suggest us if someone is looking for a cool podcast. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardinghans, Zam Kip Miller, Nick Kleinsorge, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd truly appreciate it. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and receive a ton of excellent rewards, including advanced episodes, coverage of modern 2080 in the magazine, and even monthly Q&As with Fox from Space Spitter and myself. Then come back next time, next week, as we take a look at the final special editions of 1992 with a 2080 action special and winter special. These feature classic Brit comic characters and holiday adventures, and sorry, spooky holiday adventures, respectively. I'm stoked to talk about both of them. Then the week after that, Eli, it's time for our 1992 year in review show, The Maggies. We're gonna be talking about the best stuff from the year, from the past year in comics. And while we're going to be talking about it, we also want to know what you, the listener, thought as well. Send in your nominations for Best Art, Best Writing, Best Overall Thrill, and Most Valuable Person of 1992. Get your nominations in soon, and we'll read them on the episode. It'll be a lot of fun. And until then, I'm Conrad, they're Eli, and we are Batman 1, Drock It! Drock it.